Hello everyone, coming at you here with uh, the second in our series that we're looking at throughout Lent of uh, famous hymn writers. Uh, and today uh, we're talking about somebody who, well, maybe if you don't know him or his story, but you definitely know one of the hymns he wrote, probably one of the most famous hymns uh, that's out there, uh, Amazing Grace, which I think even if you're not like a real churchy person, you know Amazing Grace. It's, uh, it's a classic. Uh, and it was written by a guy named John Newton, uh, who has a fascinating life, which, well, I'm going to tell you about now. So let's start at the beginning. Uh, John Newton. So he's born on July 24th, 1725. He's an only child. His father was uh, a sailor and eventually goes on to be a ship captain. His mother uh, stayed at home and raised him. Uh, she was part of this interesting uh, movement. They were called nonconformists. It's this sect of Protestantism that refused to well, to conform to the Church of England, which is the standard you know, Protestant church body there in England. And so uh, she was part of that movement. And, and as I said, she's he is primarily raised by, by her, by his mother. I mean, his, his dad's a sailor. He's out to sea. Uh, and so uh, he's brought up you know, with religion being an important part of his life. Uh, his mom was a woman of deep faith, and she tried to pass that on uh, to her child. Unfortunately, she didn't get many years to do so, uh, because at age seven, his mother passes away from tuberculosis. Uh, and so now he falls under the care of his father, who initially sends him to boarding school because he can't take care of him. And then when his father gets remarried, uh, his stepmom starts taking care of him. But then uh, at age 11, he actually begins going on some of these trips, these sea voyages with his dad. And as you can imagine, uh, he gets exposed to all sorts of stuff that a normal 11-year-old probably wouldn't. You know, <laughs> you know, there's there's a reason there's a sailing, you know, cuss like a sailor. That's kind of what it was like, you know, drinking and cussing and uh, womanizing and all sorts of immorality were, were common on uh, especially on merchant ships, not so much on the Navy ones, but on merchant ships, uh, which his dad was on. Uh, and that's what he was exposed to. And so that faith that his mother initially tried to raise him in to kind of get drowned out by, you know, th this worldliness and sinfulness that he sees uh, going on on, uh, on his father's uh, sailing expeditions that he accompanies. Uh, and so as he grows older, uh, it's really, it's that that kind of takes hold of him, this you know, this, this love of the sea and of sailing and all of that, and that's going to, we're going to see, becomes uh, a big part of his life. And just, God just doesn't, be, isn't important for him, you know, as, I mean, it's true. For, there's, this isn't an, a unique story. A lot of, you know, teenagers fall out of religion, don't want to go to church like their mom says, and all that stuff. Well, that, that's him, right? And so as he's, he's coming of age, uh, as he grows older, um, he sees right, no desire for God, no need for God in his life, and, and he's an experienced seaman, uh, and he's excited to go off and, you know, sow some wild oats, like young people do. Uh, it's, it's 1742. His father is just retired from uh, the sea now, and he's taken an office job for the Royal Africa Company. Uh, and what he does is, is his dad kind of makes arrangements to, uh, to set up... The, uh, young John Newton for the rest of his life, right? He, he's, he's used his connections to uh, uh, obtain a position for John as a, a plantation overseer in, jo in Jamaica. So he would oversee the slaves and the farming operation. I mean, this was a pretty, this was a pretty good job, and it had quite a bit of opportunity for upward uh, mobility and growth and for 
getting young Newton a bunch of wealth and making something out of his life. Um, but he never goes to Jamaica because something else gets in his way. Young love. <laughs> Again, he's a typical teenager here. And he uh, strikes up this kind of teenage romance with this uh, young girl his named Mary Catlett. Uh, they fall head over heels for each other, and she lives in Kent, and he's out visiting her, uh, and he's supposed to be getting back to get on his ship, but he doesn't. <laughs> he, he stays with Mary. And so his ship, his ship uh, leaves for Jamaica, and he's not on it, and he doesn't want to be on it. You know, He wants to be with, with Mary. This is the woman he, he loves. Uh, his father's pretty outraged at this, so uh, he says, okay, fine, you're not going to Jamaica, you're going to go get on a ship, you're going to be a sailor. No more of this cushy plantation overseer stuff. And so he begins working as a common sailor, uh, getting no special treatment, and it's, which is, I mean, it's tough work to start out it. Um, this lasts for, you know, a few months. Uh, then in 1743, he goes to, to visit some friends, where he's actually taken in by a press gang. Um, and, and he's forced into the service of the Royal Navy. Uh, this is just, a, it's a crazy time to be <laughs> a sailor, right? And so, uh, like, it's just a weird concept for us in modern-day life. But what they would do is the British Navy would send out these gangs of people to literally, like, kidnap uh, kidnap men and force them to serve in the Navy, right? There was no, it wasn't a drafted uh, and they would, I mean, try to recruit people to sign up, but uh, they needed a, they needed a lot of people on these ships, right? Uh, Britain's success was due to their navy, and they were spread out throughout the world at this point in history. And they need a lot of men on these ships, especially uh, in times uh, of war. And so they would just send out these press gangs, just a bunch of big burly guys, to go and and take, you know, other guys, pre preferably people with sea experience they're really looking to kidnap seamen uh, and take them in, onto the ship uh you know which, which a lot of people didn't want to do because again and i kind of mentioned that earlier you know the navy was strict and it was harsh and you know there wasn't a lot of room for fun and frivolity uh, and it didn't pay as well as merchant ships you know merchant ships just had a lot more going for them you get paid better you got to go out and have more fun you didn't have you know the, somebody uh well you would have a captain over you but it wasn't nearly as strict as a navy captain would be and so people didn't want to voluntarily sign up so they were forced to uh, and they would literally by threat of either you know get on this boat or we're going to beat up or uh, there you know physical harm would come to people who didn't go along with the press gang uh, and so he's taken by by this press gang and he's forced onto a navy ship uh, and he he now sails on the hms harwich right and then that's his life um now, I know what you're thinking, right? Like, how do they keep people on these ships? Uh, and you know what? You're not alone in this thinking. Newton's thinking the same way, right? I like He even describes himself at this point in his life as he says, I was arrogant, rebellious, and I was living a recklessly sinful life. Uh, and he has no sense of honor that's keeping him to serve on board. And so uh, as, as he finds out his ship is going to soon be heading off to India, where he'll be gone for five years, something he does not want. He just wants to, you know, get back to his old life, get back to Mary. Uh, he decides, I'm just going to just run away. I mean, right? Like, what are they going to do? How can they stop me? So he tries to escape. He tries to desert. Um, doesn't work. Gets caught. Right? And at which point he's brought back to the ship. He's t tied to the ship and he's lashed. Uh, I mean, yeah, 
it's corporal punishment and it's harsh and it's that's how they kept people from running away uh, the threat of violence and and not just the threat the execution of violence which is what happened to a young newton uh, and this is an incredibly difficult point in his life as he looks out and sees uh, you know a future he doesn't want and he actually contemplates suicide during this time um luckily for him He's not alone in thinking that a Navy life is not going to be right for him. Right? Because his captain uh, seems like uh, appears to agree with that assessment. Uh, and so before, actually, as the ship is setting off to India, they get rid of uh, Newton. You know, he's just not made for the Navy. So he's actually transferred to a different ship called the Pegasus, which was a slave ship. Uh, something that he had no issue with, as most people most Englishmen especially didn't in, during this time period. You know, that was just a part of life. And so he takes on uh, becoming a slaver and on working this ship, and he took to it very quickly. He actually, he liked it. He saw it as a good way to make a lot of money. Uh, he ends up working for a slaver, a, a guy named Mr. Clow. Um, eventually, <laughs> partly because it's kind of interesting, the history of here. He, he seemed, again, he, his rebellious streak, his... Um, I, I mentioned earlier, you know, sailors are known for kind of their hard living. Well, he was really known for his hard living. He was apparently really hard to deal with on, on a ship. Uh, and he would be vocally, you know, making, mocking the captain. And, um, it's even reported that, you know, even, even other sailors were kind of taken back by his, uh, his cussing and his use of swear words, some of which he would invent new ones for. Um, and so uh, eventually they kind of get him off the ship. He ends up um, still working for Mr. Clow, uh, it, but really under underneath kind of the jurisdiction of his wife, more on the on the mainland. He's on the, the Plantain Islands now, which is near Sierra Leone. Uh, and he's still working in the slaving operation, uh, but in essence, he kind of becomes a slave, right? And he's, he's treated incredibly poorly um, by Chloe and his wife. Uh, he's treated, honestly, sometimes he says it's worse than the slaves. It's hard to imagine, but probably not much better. You know, he's abused, he's mistreated, he's, he's hungry, he's starved, he doesn't have shelter. Um, he's just struggling to survive. Uh, this is really the low point in his life, and he... I mean, probably thinking he was better off in the Navy ship now, which originally was the low point in his life. So things are just, you know, went from bad to worse for him. Uh, and he ends up there a couple years kind of in this just really tough situation. Eventually he does escape this life uh, and he finds himself a, a new ship, uh, gets away. Now he's on the Greyhound, uh, which is a merchant vessel, which is back where he wants to be. And he, things are actually finally looking up for him. Uh, he gets back in contact with his dad at this period. And he ends up going back to England and, and visiting his, his dad. And, you know, things are things are going, uh, well, things are going a lot better. He, he's where he wants to be. He's a sailor on a merchant vessel. He's got opportunity for advances. He's making better money. Um, right? And, and it's also during this time where he starts kind of returning to something that he, he hasn't for a long time, something from his youth, his faith, right? For it's on the Greyhound uh, that Newton begins to just start thinking about God. Like, not seriously, but he, he starts reading. Uh, there's very little reading material on on the, the ship itself. And one of the books that's there is uh, by an author, a guy named Thomas Akempis, uh, and it's called The Imitation of Christ. And it's this just really profound little book. Uh, it's kind of a medieval spiritual journey on devoting one's life to Christ. And uh, it's, yeah, it, it's really one of the most famous and popular books um, 
during this whole time period throughout much of of the Middle Ages into the early 1700s, even into today. I mean, I've got a copy of it on my shelf as well. I've read it. It's a, it's a brilliant little book. And he starts reading this, and it starts getting him to think about, about God. And he actually starts reading uh, the Bible as, as well again. Um, he, you know, he's not running back to God or, or anything, but it, he's thinking about it, right? And while he's thinking about these things, um, well, something happens that often happens on the sea, uh, when it's kind of sailor's worth nightmare, a storm, right? Storms are horrific, uh, especially a big storm, especially if you're out in sea, if you can't get to any place of shelter to, to batter down, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people, a lot of boats have sunk, a lot of lives have been lost, uh, out on the ocean and, and even in, the, even in the lakes, like the Great Lakes here in America and out uh, getting caught in storms. Uh, so this is, this is not a good place to be, right? And a huge storm catches this ship out on open water, um, it's March 21st, 1748, and John Newton is pretty confident he's going to die, right? Uh, the waves are crashing over the side of the ship. The, the wood of the ship is just creaking in pain. It sounds like it's breaking up. You know, he, he sees one of his fellow crew members actually get, you know, sucked off the boat by the waves and, and goes overboard, and they never see him again. Right? And so there he is. He's like he, he's literally tied to the ship so he doesn't get uh, taken overboard. He's bailing water out of this ship that's you know imminent of going down. Uh, and, and it's in this situation as the storm is raging and as he's possibly going to die, he does the only thing he can think of, which is to pray. Right? something he really hasn't been doing much of in, in many a year. But he starts to pray. Right? And he prays that God would save him. He prays that God would forgive him. He prays for God's mercy. He prays for God's love. He prays that God would just be there with him and get him through this. Uh, and even if he doesn't get him through this, that he would, you know, forgive him and, you know, bring him to heaven and all of that. So he's he's just scared, and he, he's doing the only thing he can think of, and he's praying to this God that he's been ignoring for a long time. Uh, and as he prays, well, the storm calms, right? And, and it ends. And he survives, right? and he survives uh, a changed man, right? and it's in this moment where, where he finds faith, where right? he finds a new relationship with God. Like this really does uh, change him. It really does, and that's why we know the date. You know that March twenty first, seventeen forty eight, because every year on that date he celebrates this moment, uh, as as his eyes are opened, as his heart is opened, as he embraces uh, God. You know, later on in life, he calls this the hour I first believed, which, if you know the hymn, would sound familiar. Uh, although, even though this this really was a big changing moment, it still takes a while for it to fully take hold. Uh, and he readily admits that, he, you know, backsliding is a thing he, he talks about. How, uh, it, it's just hard to leave that old life behind, especially when you're still involved with it. And so he, he has this new faith in God, and he has this belief in God, and yet it doesn't lead him to change much of the way he's living his life. You know, he's still doing a lot of his old sailor stuff. You know, he's still cussing and drinking and womanizing and doing all that stuff. Uh, yeah, he, he has a relationship with God, though, now that, that used to not be there, and it, and it is growing in him, right? And it comes to full fruition about a year later after the shipwreck, uh, after there's near shipwreck, where once again he's in he's in dire straits. He's taken ill with a fever, uh, and again he's scared about his his life if he's going to survive and what will happen to him if he don't. His immortal soul and all of that, and again he prays, right? And again he prays that God would come and save him, 
that God would, would heal him, that God would let him to get past this, uh, which he does. And then this time, this time after, you know, two, uh, you know, scares on his life, after two sessions of praying God to save him, uh, he finally says, okay, I'm going to change, right? Uh, and now he does leave his past life behind him. Um, he stops all of the his old sin and ways. Uh, he goes and marries Mary, who he's been keeping in contact with this whole time, right? And he and he settles down, right? He's got he's got his wife, he's got his faith. Uh, life is good, right? And and he he really does devote his life to God from this point on, and and spends a lot of time studying Scripture and theology. Um, but he's still an ex- an accomplished and experienced sailor. So he also, during this time period, becomes captain of his own ship, a ship called the Duke of Argyle, which was a slave ship, which is what he knew. It's something. It's a, it's a trade it's a, uh, that he's familiar with, right? And it, it seems odd to us, looking back on this, to think, how can somebody who's just come to God, who just embraced Christ, who's just, you know, fully gone into his Christianity, how can they go and you know, buy and sell other human beings, um, just wasn't an issue for Newton. It wasn't an issue for very, for the majority of Christians at this point in history. They just accepted that's, that was a part of life, and they really didn't see a, a problem with it, right? They didn't see a problem with slavery. They didn't see themselves as doing anything evil or, or wrong, well, as they sold other human beings for labor, you know, and instead, it, you know, Newton and many others saw this as a good, upstanding line of work, and, and so that's what he did. For the next few years, he captained slave ships, both the Duke of Argyle and then another ship called the African, and he makes multiple trips between Africa and the Caribbean, delivering slaves. Uh, many of the slaves who made their way over to the Americas are because John Newton brought them. Um, and he does this, like I said, for years, until in 1754, he starts getting health issues, uh, which actually forces him to give up being on a ship. And so now he takes a job as a tide surveyor in Liverpool. Uh, he's firmly back on land now, and, and uh, he becomes very active in, in the church, right? And, and not just the local church, but the larger church, and he begins attending different meetings, prayer meetings. Um, he befriends really famous preachers, George Whitfield, John Wesley, right, which he loves their preaching. He follows Whitfield around especially. <laughs> uh, he at one point gets the nickname Little Whitfield, not because he preached like him, but because he was always right behind him. He was <laughs> accompanying him. Right? And he devotes really all of his free time at this point to just studying the Bible, to studying theology, to learning as much as he can about all of it. Uh, at this time, he learns both Greek and Hebrew, which, to help him better understand Scripture, uh, and he just he becomes uber Christian, right? He even begins doing some of his own preaching at this time as a as a lay minister, right? And and this keeps up over the next few years until uh, eventually, after multiple attempts, right? It took him actually seven years of trying, uh, but he eventually gets ordained. Now, why he took so long, you know, it's hard to say. It's, uh, possibly his background and his tales of younger years, or maybe, I mean, he's, he is just quite a character. <laughs> and so it, t- it takes him some years of convincing. Um, and he, but he does eventually get ordained. He becomes a priest in the Church of England, which is a huge moment for Newton. This is something he's been working for and, and, and longing for for a long time um, because he really does want to devote his life to God and to spreading God's message. And so that's what he does. 
becomes a priest uh, in the Church of England again, in the Episcopal Church. He accepts a call to a small church in Olney, Buckinghamshire. Uh, I don't know if I said any of that right. But this, this, little, this little town, just it's a little bit north of London. Um, I mean, today it only has 6,000 people in it. At the time, it was probably around 2,000. So it's just, it's a small town uh, and a small church. Uh, and he loved it there. He loved it. And he loved the ministry he could do. He loved being able to go out and preach Christ every day. He loved every aspect of it. And he did wonderful ministry in this small community. He served there for 16 years. His his became immensely popular as a preacher. Uh, he would draw large crowds so much so that the church like wasn't big enough to hold them. And they actually had to expand on and add more room just uh, because of the amount of people he was drawing, and you can understand why, because he preached, I mean, he has a lot of, a lot of just fascinating experiences throughout his life that he lived, you know, he's, he's regaling them with stories of his old sailor days, and his old sinner days, and all the, all the stuff he got up to, uh, and, you know, he got up to a lot of, a lot of stuff, right, and, and he talks about that, and then he ties it all into God's grace, and forgiveness, and how God redeemed him, and saved him, and all of that good stuff, right, and so people love it, Right? And he draws mass crowds, and he grows that church. Um, and it's there while he's in Olney, while he's doing this ministry, that, uh, that he also starts writing hymns. Right? And a lot of these hymns would be written to, a, to kind of accompany uh, his sermon for the day, uh, including one of them, which was his most popular, well, is now his most popular, it wasn't at the time, uh, Amazing Grace. Right. This was this was written probably in in seventeen. Uh, well, in, in December of seventeen seventy two, used in uh, January of seventeen seventy three, um, published in seventeen seventy nine. So much later, uh, as as he becomes friends with this guy named William Cowper, and the two of them, uh, they publish this little collection of hymns that they both wrote. Right. It's it's this book called the Only Hymns. Uh, it contains seventy eight hymns by Cowper and 280 by John Newton. So he wrote a lot of hymns, right? He wrote a lot of stuff. Uh, and, and among them was this one, Amazing Grace. It, it was listed under the title, First Chronicles 17, verses 16 through 17, which is likely, you know, the, the text that the sermon that he wrote th this for was accompanying, right? This is, again, it was tied to a sermon, to a message he was giving on a Sunday morning. But they, they publish it in this book, um, and it's, you know, I'll get into Amazing Grace, but it's, it's an amazing hymn. It's just this, you can see everything kind of we've talked about in his, his story. It's this declaration of how he used to be a wretch and how, uh, and how God came and saved him, right? How he was lost and he was found. Uh, it's this deeply personal recounting of his own life uh, and, and of God's salvation and God's forgiveness uh, and how just this powerful account of how God saved him and changed his life. Right? And that's that's amazing grace. Now, what I think is really fascinating is that initially, uh, this hymn was not a hit. Right? And the only hymns were. This book actually became very popular early on. And many of the hymns that were printed in there, many of the other ones, were widely praised and were distributed by other, you know, they were added into other publications. They became staples of other hymnals as more hymnals were being made. You know, they put a lot of, a lot of Newton's hymns made it into to stuff. But Amazing Grace was just not one of them. It wasn't. Uh, in fact, one review of the hymn states that Newton, as a songwriter, was unashamedly middle-brow lyricist writing for a low-brow congregation. 
right. And that seems to be uh, the initial problem with Amazing Grace, why it didn't catch on. It was just considered too plain to be good. It doesn't have nice, you know, flowery, poetic language to it. Um, and honestly, if that hymn just stayed in England, if it just was left like as an English hymn, it probably would have disappeared into obscurity. Right? But luckily for us, Amazing Grace, the hymn, doesn't stay in England. We're not sure how, but somehow uh, this hymn, maybe a copy of the Only Hymns books made its way over or what, but this hymn makes it to the U.S. Right? And it's here in the United States, actually quite a few years later, that it becomes immensely popular. Right? And it becomes a staple of services during the Second Great Awakening, this, this big religious movement that happens in America, you know, like in the uh, 1790s or 1840. Right? This, and it was a time in America, we you know, where people were, were in mass, um, you know, repenting, and it was a revival movement, and they were coming to church, and, and they were singing all kinds of, of new hymns, and one of them that really took off was Amazing Grace. Right? Uh, it was being sung differently than we would sing it today. Um, it wasn't until, uh, really, 1847, the first time it was published with the tune we know. Right, That's a tune called New Britain. Uh, it was put to that tune by an American composer named William Walker, who, t who took this popular this popular hymn and put it to this tune and thought the two would fit, and he was right. They do, right? But we actually don't know what what tune it was originally sung to uh, back in England. We, we just don't have any record of that. Um, if at all, maybe it was just read as a poem. Uh, we do know that there's, you know, copies of over 20 different tunes that were used for, for Amazing Grace here in the States um, before New Britain kind of established itself as the one. Um, but it's it there in 1847 that that New Britain tune gets set to it, and you know the rest is is kind of history. It's just the tune and the lyrics they just perfectly go together, and they produce this beautiful hymn uh, we all know now. And and like I said, it's it's hugely hugely popular here in America, and still is to this day, and has been you know for hundreds of years. Um, and it is it is a, just a great declaration of his faith and his life. You know, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. It, it sums up everything. <laughs> it sums up Newton's life and, it, and his faith. Um, you know, and the rest of the verses do the same. Uh, and it's, it's just great. I love it. It's one of my favorite hymns. Probably is for you as well, especially if you're listening to this in America. Wow, us Americans, we love this hymn. Right. So, what happens to Newton then? Um, you know, shortly after publishing the, the Only Hymns, he ends up uh, leaving Olney. Uh, he ends up going to a church in London, and he, and he stays there and serves that church until his death. And again, he becomes very popular as a preacher there. Um, later on in life, it takes him a while, but like kind of around 1788, later on, he does become a very vocal critic of slavery. Um and he uses his own experiences in the slave trade. It's, again, something he knew well and he participated in. Right? And he ends up, uh, he publishes this pamphlet. It's called Thoughts Upon the African Slave Trade, which he gives kind of a graphic account of his experiences, kind of the horrors that he's seen, and he shows the evils of slavery. It sells out quick. You know, he changes many minds. He works with William Wilberforce, who's kind of one of the the main driving force behind ending slavery uh, in England, uh, and although it you know it takes years and years for this work to be accomplished, he does he has a huge impact 
um, because he is a popular preacher and because he is well known. Uh, he does have a huge impact in, in fighting to end uh, slavery and bringing about its uh, abolition there in Britain. Um, so he does a lot of a lot of good. You know, it's kind of horrific that he participated in it in the first place, but then. Uh, but then he does see the evils of it and does fight against it and does does amazing work in helping to to end it. Um, and so he you know he ends out his life there in London um, as he ages you know his health gets worse. Uh, he ends up losing his sight and becomes pretty much blind. Um, Mary dies uh, before him, uh, which was a huge loss for him. Uh, she was just you know she was a constant companion. She was his true love throughout his whole life. You know he sacrificed a lot for her throughout his life. Um, and yet he goes on preaching every Sunday and and proclaiming God's grace. Uh, I love this quote I found, you know, when he was urged at one point later in his life to, to slow down and even retire. Uh, he said, you know, my memory is nearly gone, but I do remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior, which was all he needed because that's what he proclaimed. That was the heart of his message. Uh, and they were both true. So eventually, uh, he he does die on December twenty first, eighteen oh seven. He's he's buried alongside his wife. Uh, he left behind and uh, a little saying for his gravestone, which I love. Uh, it, and it still is there today. If you go to England, you can find his gravestone, and it reads: John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and a libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. That was John Newton. He was a, a wretch who was saved, someone who was lost but found, uh, a sinner who was forgiven and redeemed. It's a it's a fascinating story, uh, and hopefully next time you uh, you sing Amazing Grace, you can remember a little bit about about what was going on behind it. Um, you know, and you can remember that it's true for you as well, because if if John Newton can be loved and saved by God, then so can you, whoever you are. And that's, I think that was that was the heart of, of Newton's ministry uh, after he did embrace Christ and became a pastor, was letting people know, whoever they are, uh, no matter what they've done, even if they are a great sinner, well, so was he. And God loved him and saved him and forgave him, and God will do the same for you. So there you go. Amazing Grace and John Newton. All right, so until next time, have a good one, everybody.